Welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. For Friday, October the 9th, the governor of the Bank of Canada says he's not taking the possibility of negative interest rates off the table. So we reached out to Ian Lee to find out exactly what negative interest rates are. And according to the BBC, a poll of their listeners says that U2's Joshua Tree is the greatest album of the 80s. Oh, really? So we'll discuss that. But first things first, I'd like to welcome on to the show Dr. Michael Warner. He's a medical director of critical care at Michael Guerin Hospital here in Toronto. It's, uh, I'd like to say it's a pleasure to have you on, but I know when we do have you on, it's, it's because things are not looking good in the province. So I thank you for sparing some time for us. My pleasure. So give us an idea of where we're at right now as far as Michael Guerin's concerned when we talk about critical care numbers. So at my hospital, uh, we have beds for, for patients, and we, we don't have uh, many patients with COVID-19 in the hospital. That being said, the turnaround time for testing for inpatients at my hospital and some other hospitals can be up to five days. So we have patients who are in isolation, presuming they could have COVID-19, but we haven't been able to rule out the fact that they, uh, that they have COVID because of the delays in testing. So those, those lineups that you saw before and now the virtual lineups that you can't see actually affect inpatient testing as well because we're fighting for the same lab capacity as people who are asymptomatic uh, at a pharmacy. And what does that do to, you know, the, the uh, question mark around are these people that are coming into the emergency room possibly COVID-19 positive, but we won't know for a while. What does that do to the time spent with each of those um, patients and how far back does it backlog the uh, emergency room? So in our best days, we would be able to get a test within 24 hours and, and, and that should be what we're striving for. But if it takes three, four or five days to get a COVID test result, then as you can imagine, it's hard to know how to treat the patient because you have to treat them for diseases they ultimately do not have, whether it be COVID and they never had COVID or pneumonia and they never had pneumonia uh, from a bacteria. And then if you're trying to get patients out of the ICU, uh, there are only so many beds that we have in any given hospital that can handle a patient that's in isolation. So being able to remove the patient from isolation, being able to rule out COVID quickly, facilitates flow within the hospital. And then you have patients that we need to decant from the hospital, either home or to long-term care homes. And long-term care homes, many of which are on outbreak right now, are not receiving patients. And then if they are receiving patients, you have to have a negative COVID test within 48 hours to be able to send that patient out. Uh, so there's a bottleneck on the output side from hospitals. So as you can imagine, the hospital can balloon very quickly as we're still providing all forms of non-COVID care. Influenza season hasn't even started. And that will end up you know, backing up into the emergency room and leading to the hallway medicine situation, not just in my hospital, but at many hospitals that uh, we've come to know in Ontario. Not to mention you're trying to clear the backlog that was caused last uh, lockdown uh, with regard to uh, all the elective surgeries being postponed or, or cancelled. So can you tell us where that leaves those surgeries in the future? Well, so they're the, you know, our hospital's done a great job of trying to get through as many patients as, as possible and surgeons, nurses, the OR teams are working around the clock to uh, provide that care to patients. But we also have to consider the patients who never entered the healthcare system between March and June. They weren't able to get biopsies or CT scans or MRIs. They weren't even able to have their problems diagnosed. And my concern is that we're going to start to see people presenting with diseases that are in later stages that were never identified during wave one and now require much more significant, expensive and uh, care that could lead to worse outcomes, including death for those patients because their problems weren't diagnosed earlier. Uh, and those surgeries, if they need them, could be more complicated. So 
all of this is interrelated. Uh, you know, COVID has a tremendous impact on non-COVID-related care and the ability of hospitals to provide care for, for all patients. Uh, Brampton Civic Hospital yesterday said that they have uh, an extremely busy emergency department. They've been in extreme code gridlock multiple times in recent weeks. What is what is extreme code gridlock? So, you know, I don't work at Brampton Civic, but one of my colleagues at my hospital, Brooks Fallis, is the director there. And code gridlock, to my understanding, is is similar to a you know a surge situation where. There, you know, the the emergency department is overflowing with patients because there's no capacity within the hospital to uh, move patients upstairs, and uh, you know that just makes it more difficult for patients to be cared for in a timely manner in the emergency emergency department, and also makes it more challenging to isolate patients from each other because. Emergency departments aren't typically designed to maximize infection prevention and control, especially older emergency departments. So then you have a bunch of people sitting in a waiting room who could have COVID and in a few weeks influenza. You have patients on gurneys and hallways who could be infectious as well. So it it makes the whole system really more difficult to manage. You know, last time we spoke, you were talking about the backlog in tests and how you uh, wanted the government to walk back the anybody can get a COVID test and asymptomatic people can get a COVID test. It was right before they announced that we'd be doing this in um, pharmacies around Ontario. And you had mentioned the reason is, is your you and every other medical professional gets into the backlog of those lab tests and you're just you're stuck there. There's no triage system. There's no priority as far as COVID tests go. And because of that, the risk is that we're going to have less and less uh, hospital professionals or medical professionals within the system that can get back to work quickly after a negative test because they're waiting in the backlog. Not only that, but a lot of uh, doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals are um, parents. So they are caring for school-age children that might have potential COVID-19 systems. Uh, symptoms rather. So um, how bad is it right now with healthcare workers, you know, that, that may be staying home for test results? And what's that doing to hospitals? So, you know, some hospitals will actually control their own COVID-19 labs. So they have the ability to triage their healthcare workers ahead of the the regular public. But uh, as you mentioned, it's not just doctors. I mean, if, if, if our valued custodians can't be at work because they need to be with their kids at home, then the ICU room doesn't get turned over for the next patient. So we work as a team. Every person is mm-hmm. just as important. And I am concerned that we are going to have supply side problems. One of my colleagues was off for 60 hours waiting for her COVID test. There's a finite number of doctors and healthcare workers and demand for, for beds is going to increase. So we, we, I think a lot of hospitals are trying to find an alternative pathway for staff to get tested, including my own, which I think is, is helpful. But what you mentioned earlier is, is I think, the, the bigger problem, that we've made it easier for people to get tests if they're asymptomatic, and we've made it more difficult for people to get tests if they're symptomatic. I don't know many essential workers you know, from the poor areas around my hospital who have unlimited internet access, who speak English you know, as their first language consistently, who can make a COVID test online or on phone, by phone, and mm. then wait six or seven days for the results. I mean, that's, that's just not practical for a lot of people who need to get the test. So we need mobile testing units in hotspot zones. We need to make it much easier for the people most likely to be infected with COVID to get tested. And we need those test results back right away so contact tracing can occur. Because right now, neither are occurring, which means our public health me- measures to, you know, to help protect us are essentially not functioning. Right now, uh, the province is getting set to uh, enter what they're calling an emergency meeting. It's scheduled for 11 a.m. 
And the government's pandemic advisors will recommend that cabinet put Ontario's COVID-19 hotspots like Toronto, like Ottawa, under modified versions of the province's stage two restrictions. So what Davila is asking for, Dr. Davila, is um, that it's a 28 day closure of indoor service at restaurants as well as um, group fitness classes. It might go farther. We don't know if it's going to extend to closing down a gym entirely, but this is to rein in the spread of COVID-19 in the city. Can you punctuate? Because I think a lot of businesses right now are really worried about the potential of another lockdown. But can you punctuate why that uh, 28 days is important that uh, Dr. Davila is asking for and why it's necessary Well, there's a few things. First of all, I think the province should have listened to her last week. Uh, I mean, this may be too little too late, to be frank. And I I don't quite understand uh, what their hesitancy was to follow the advice of a professional in public health who knows her jurisdiction better than anyone. But uh, I think the goal here is to reduce the risk of a more significant lockdown. Uh, The Premier's talked about a surgical approach, although I haven't seen him take that yet. by introducing targeted interventions, that means reducing the chances that strangers are going to interact in a way where they can't adhere to public health measures. That means sitting at a table without a mask on, having a drink or eating a meal. That means sitting in a spin class, huffing and puffing with strangers in the same studio. Those are the activities that can potentiate the spread of COVID-19. If you're not among strangers and if you're not inhaling each other's droplets, COVID-19 cannot spread. But if you are, it can. 28 days is, is kind of two cycles of, of infection and recovery. So the, the goal being, you know, 28 days from now, we'll see, you know, how much worse is our situation than it is now, because I actually don't think it'll be better. And have we been able to, you know, change our place on that curve that was modeled out on September 30th that you mentioned, which is the Victoria-Australia curve that we're firmly on that shows that we're well on our way to 1,000 cases per day, which means our ICUs will be, will be overwhelmed uh, in, a, in a matter of weeks. Uh, I don't think we have, like, we don't have a choice, and, and we have to be real here. I mean, having COVID running rampant in the community is not good for business either. It's not safe for employees, and people won't be going to these restaurants or gyms if they're scared. And I think we need to support the small, medium-sized businesses. If that means raising taxes for people like me, then, then let's do that. But uh, just to say that, you know, it's either business or health is a false dichotomy. Without health, there will be no business. You're the first person I have heard say, I don't think we have a choice, which is, you know, uh, it's a sobering message. So uh, what do you want to hear from well, the government today? Well, I mean, Kelly, if nothing changes, nothing changes, right? So for people who say, you know, we can't close restaurants, we can't do this. So, so tell me what we're going to do. Because the message of, you know, wash your hands, you know, keep, keep physical distance, follow public health measures is like trying to put out a house fire with a kink garden hose. I mean, if you, if you keep on trying to put the water on, the fire is still going to burn. So we, we need to do something different because if we don't, you know, our fate is somewhat sealed and that, that fate will be a more significant lockdown, loss of livelihoods and more loss of life. So what I want from the government, I mean, my list is quite long, but I would like them to put signs first to truly prioritize health and safety. Whatever interests are speaking to them outside of the scientific realm, they need to stand down and let you know, the epidemiologists, infectious disease doctors and other experts carry the day. And I think the public needs to hear what the recommendations of the public health measures table are directly and not have those recommendations filtered through the voice of cabinet or the premier. Because we need to know what we need to do to keep ourselves safe, even if government isn't going to make those rules to make that easier. 
Dr. Warner, before I let you go, I'm wondering if you could uh, or if you would like to give our listenership a message as we go into Thanksgiving on how important uh, their um, their actions are to provincially where we go with these numbers. Yeah, so, so there is some personal accountability here, and I think it's more challenging because the messaging has been inconsistent. The Premier's been more consistent in his latest message that if the person doesn't live in your house, they shouldn't be in your house uh, for Thanksgiving. That includes kids coming home from university. Now is not the time to bring kids home from university. This could be a super spreader event if that occurs. This is not the time to be with extended family who've been excluded from your social circle since school reopened. So for my family, I'm not seeing my parents, I'm not seeing my sister, the same people that I haven't been seeing since school resumed. It's very difficult and uh, will cause anxiety, depression, you know, all these things that we have to concern ourselves with. But if we don't make the tough decisions today, then future holidays uh, will be in jeopardy as well. Dr. Warner, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, uh, our thoughts go out to you and your colleagues working very hard at the hospital and, uh, and other uh, first responders and, and frontline workers. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a good weekend. All right. You too. Chris and I spent a lot of time off air looking at online stories and, and different stories in different newspapers, trying to figure out what uh, we should break down a little further and things that uh, usually connect with us, we assume are going to connect with you. This story caught both of our eyes yesterday, and we both saw it around the same time. The Bank of Canada is, uh, the headline is, keeps door open to the possibility of negative rates. This is in the Toronto Star. The Bank of Canada Governor, Tiff McCallum, said that negative interest rates remain an option even if policymakers aren't currently considering such a move. Our big question was, what the heck is a negative interest rate? We didn't even know they existed. So here to talk about it, professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, Ian Lee. Ian, welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning, and thank you very much for inviting me. Well, what is a negative interest rate? Um, I know it sounds weird, <laughs> and I, I want to assure you I'm not a monetary policy expert, although I certainly was a banker for 10 years before I be, went back to school and became a professor. Um, I was a lender. I lent money. Um, I was a mortgage manager at the main office branch of the Bank of Montreal many, many years ago. But that's just my background. I mean, I'm familiar with banking and lending money for charging interest. Negative interest rate, bizarre as it sounds, is where the bank charges – the lending institution, but it's generally banks because mostly it's only banks that can accept deposits. I don't want to get into that debate, but it's largely banks that have the legal authority along with credit unions to even accept deposits. And they charge you, the depositor, for the right to put your money in the bank on deposit. Now, I hope that some of you out there are saying, why would I do such a thing? Like, if the bank's going to charge me money to keep my money on deposit, my mattress won't charge me anything. Now, That's it's interesting. A specious and funny and flippant yeah. point. Of course, a big corporation cannot put money under a mattress, okay? But big corporations aren't the only institutions in Canadian society or American society. There are roughly 30 million of us over the age of 18. There's 38 million Canadians. I think it's 30 million or over 18. And, um, and we do have savings, uh, all of us. And, um, you know, if the bank's going to start charging me to put my paycheck in the bank and store it in the bank, well, I'll go back to the good old days and say to my employer, give me it in cash, please. Thank you very much. And I'll take mm-hmm. it home and I'll, I'll, I'll find a nice little hole in the backyard and I'll dig it up. And when no one's looking, do it in the dark maybe. And I'll 
bury the money under the in the backyard or in the mattress. So again, I'm trying to reveal or demonstrate why it's it's very problematic. There's a more compelling argument, which is put forward by former Governor Polaz. That's why I was so astonished that Macklem is even speculating. Both the Central Bank of the United States and Canada both pointed out, A, it's fraught with difficulties, as I've tried to humorously just show. It distorts capital markets. It destroys the profitability of a bank. So therefore, we're going to, what, make banks insolvent because they can't make very much money. And, and, but most importantly, there's better alternatives. I mean, the most extreme case to um, is was fame made famous by former um, Federal Reserve Chairman Bernanke, uh, who is a professor with a PhD in economics at Princeton, and he about twenty odd years ago, in two thousand two or two thousand four, he wrote that gave that famous speech about helicopter money. He says, "Look, if things got really, really, really bad, I mean depression bad." He said the Federal Reserve can hire a whole bunch of helicopters and fly across the United States at about 50 or 100 feet above the ground, just shoveling $100 bills out the, out the helicopter. And, and you say, what on earth did you do that for? To stimulate the economy. The point is, is that when you get down to zero interest rates or almost zero, cutting interest rates doesn't work anymore. Okay, so the logic is you want to get people to spend money when you have very low inflation or deflation where prices are falling. You want to stimulate people to spend their money. Yeah, and we've heard that during this pandemic, one of the interesting things, if I could just interject for a second, uh, one of the interesting things that we learned is that people were actually saving more money during the pandemic. So is the goal to force people to tap into this hoarded cash and savings then? Yeah, I mean, they're looking at different ways to get people to start spending again. I am, I guess I'm in a minority. I don't believe this is permanent. This is a temporary situation. We were saving money like crazy because the government and our health officers were telling us, don't go outside, don't go outside, stay home, stay home. Very dangerous to go outside. And so we all stayed home. And well, if you're staying home, you're not spending very much money, are you? Well, Unless you're on Amazon. Yeah, well, you can spend some, and I did too, but I certainly didn't spend all my savings. My money was just piling up in my bank account, and many others were too because we have that data out on the savings rate. But, but Kelly, the point I want to make is, number one, is this temporary or permanent? I think many people would say it's temporary until the crisis goes away, and depending on whether we're going to lock everybody down a second time, which I really hope we do not. And then the other uh, issue is, is deflation. Is that permanent or temporary? I argue the deflation is temporary, meaning during the COVID period, one year, two years, whatever, three years, but but inflation is going to return. And if inflation returns, there's no need to even discuss negative interest rates. Negative interest rates only emerge as a topic when the interest rates are so low, they're down near zero, that you have nowhere to go and you've run out of wiggle room to stimulate the economy. So goes the argument of some central bankers, not very many. There's other ways to stimulate for a central banker. You can, you can do quantitative easing, which is where the bank is literally printing money. It's literally printing money. It's going and buying the bonds of the government of Canada and buying the bonds of Newfoundland and Labrador. And that's what quantitative easing is. It's printing money. You can do helicopter money where you literally distribute money across the landscape. You can actually do it through the banking system, through the CRA. Just instruct CRA to send a check to every person with a bank account in Canada of $1,000 each, for example. So my point is, negative interest rates have lots and lots of downsides, 
Negative interest rates have lots and lots of negatives going up for it, and not a lot of positives, which is why former Governor Polaz was so dismissive of negative interest rates, as is the Federal Reserve and other economists I've read. I was Okay, frankly, so then, Ian, uh, let me just ask you this, because you kind of brought me to the next question. So why is the current head of the Bank of Canada keeping uh, negative interest rates on the table? I'm going to give you a kind of an off-the-wall interpretation, and uh, others can say, no, 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 you know, you're crazy. And, uh, but I've met him, by the way, two or three times, professionally, downtown in Ottawa at professional events. And he's a very, very smart guy. Okay, very smart guy. Very, uh, very nerdy. And I don't mean that as a, as a cheap shot. You know, a nerd is somebody who's really, really smart and really, really geeky. You know what I mean? And, and I think he's trying to establish his own, his own um, identity, his own brand as the central bank uh, governor. Uh, Polaz was enormously popular. People don't realize this. People, a lot of people don't realize how popular was Polaz was with the business community because for 15 years, before he was the governor of the Bank of Canada, he was the president of Export Development Corporation. And he did something really cool, I thought, very unusual. He got out of the ivory tower in Ottawa and flew across the country every month, every month, every month, meeting guess who? Real people, not professors, not bureaucrats, real businessmen and businesswomen across Canada. He met thousands of real, honest-to-goodness business people. He walked the talk. He was out there in the real world. He has enormous support out there. And, and this, the new governor, is a very smart guy. He really is. He's a very, very smart guy. And I think he realizes that he doesn't have the same brand, if I will, can put it that way, mm-hmm. as Paul has did. So he's trying to differentiate himself to say, hey, look, new guy in charge. We're thinking of new innovative things. We're looking at new approaches, new ideas, new guy in charge, new person in town. Right. So and he's blue-skying like- it out loud just to get some attention? Well, not attention. I mean, it's legitimate to say I'm looking at all options. Who's going to say, no, I'm not going to look at all the options, right? But I, I kind of think there's a consensus uh, from everything I've read by central bank speeches, and I don't just mean Canada. I mean Europe central bankers, American central bankers, academics who study this, that negative interest rates is the least attractive tool in the toolkit of central bankers. Well, and I think you've done a really good job of, of telling us why they are uh, not very popular. I didn't even know they existed, and I don't think I'm alone on this. I, Chris didn't know they existed. I yeah. think a lot of people didn't. So uh, I unfortunately got to wrap it at that, Ian, but I really appreciate you walking us through this and, and describing what exactly a negative interest rate is and the pros and cons of them. doesn't seem like there's any kind of pro, but I do appreciate it. That's my view. Thanks. Have a great day. That's Thanks. professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, Ian Lee. YouTube Joshua Tree voted the best album of all time by BBC, of, sorry, of the 80s, rather, by BBC uh, Radio 2 listeners. And I think that's a joke. I mean, this is maybe the one of the fastest tempo songs on the album. It, it was a great album. Don't get me wrong. I bought tickets to the tour. I... I I enjoyed the show immensely. However, I mean, when you picture the fact that Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever was released in the 1980s, you throw in, uh, like, I'm going to throw in uh, Lyle Lovett's self-titled album, which was a big album. Um, and it was, there were a lot of great uh, albums from the Manchester scene, the Stone Roses. There was um, music from Bruce Springsteen. The River came out 
in the 80s, not to mention wasn't born in the USA out in the 80s. Neil Young's freedom. I don't know how you come up with the fact that U2's Joshua Tree is better than Peter Gabriel's So. And then David Bowie, poor David Bowie, Let's Dance. Come on, that was a pivotal album. So thoughts on this 416-870-6400 is what I'm looking for right now. Uh, hey, Bobby, in Oshawa, you two, the best no. in the 80s? No, no, no. You two, not in any decade, man. I'm sorry, I'm not a fan. Uh, okay, see, now I did, I, I think you two had some really uh, great albums, but I don't think it's the best album of the 1980s. What do you think is the best album of the 80s? I think Back in Black by ACDC all the way. All right, so you want something that actually is up-tempo. I would agree with that. Hey, Jay in Toronto. Hey, how are you, Kelly? I'm good. So what's your choice for best album in the 80s? Uh, I got to go with The Last Guy. Uh, the decade started with Back in Black. Can't go wrong, but it ended, for me, uh, with Appetite for Destruction. So I'm going with that. Okay, a little uh, GNR. Okay, I see that, and I will take that. And uh, I'll move over to someone that wants to defend you two. John, welcome uh, to the show. You want to defend uh, The Joshua Tree. It was a great album. I love every track, but it's kind of an easy listening album, no? Hi, Kelly. You know what? You really uh, took me down memory lane because I was at that show at the CNE too. Remember how cold it was? It was in the fall. Yeah, you know what? I think it might have been raining. And I don't think I it think... rained. Uh, Los was it Lobos not? opened the show. Oh, you know, I, 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 I think I might have been it, out in the parking it was lot just very and enjoying and a bottle of Baby Duck with my girlfriends. It was very windy and cold, but I'd like to defend that album because okay. it's not as sleepy as you say. The second side, you've got In God's Country, you've got uh, Trip Through Your Wires. That's a great yeah, album Yeah, okay, that's right a good, great song. Yeah. I, I love that record. It, it, as a matter of fact, I think it's important in terms of its influence, how much it sold. It really brought a lot of people together. You had older people liked it, younger people. But I just want to say this quickly. You stole mm-hmm. a lot of my thunder at the beginning of the segment because you mentioned some great records. You mentioned So. You mentioned Graceland. How about Remain in Light by the Talking Heads? Murmur oh. by R.E.M., although it's impossible yeah. to pick a, an R.E.M. album. But here's one that I think gets overlooked. I think Synchronicity by the Police is a wonderful album. It is a great album. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, but to me, Synchronicity and Joshua Tree are kind of on the same playing field. And the reason why I say this is, and you might argue with me on this, but they almost seem to be one note. And, by it, the and way, it's like they're are... concept albums, kind of. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I really... And I know Brothers in Arms was a concept album, and so was kind of so you could argue that there were a lot of concept albums being made. But they really, those two albums struck me as a one note. You're absolutely right. You really are. It's impossible to make a list of these things because there are so many great albums of the 80s. Oh. But where are the Smiths? Oh, the Smiths. Yeah, I know. Smiths have to be in there. Bed. What about Randy Newman, Trouble in Paradise? And thank you for giving Lyle Lovett a shout out. What a great record that was. Listen, that album made me purchase my speakers. I went into the store and, uh, and, and I was looking for new speakers, and they put on that Lyle Lovett self-titled album, and I, I was, didn't know much about him. And I was like, this is so well-produced, and it's so well done. I think that's one of my Desert Island albums, to be honest. Yeah, most of his albums from that decade are the nicest-sounding CDs you will ever hear on a good sound system. Yeah, I appreciate your call, John. Thanks, Thanks so much. Kelly. Have a great day. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. Hey, uh, Shane, you're bringing up one of my favorite albums. What, what do you think yep. is the best album of the 80s? Beastie Boys License Sale. 
and I, I kind of, I'm really stuck on that because the '80s was a time when, um, like, Run DMC started coming out, and hip hop yep. was it was it was good because it wasn't just packed with a bunch of guys swearing and and doing that. Like, there was some really skilled rappers that were coming out, but at the same time, yeah, for me, it was License Hill, Run DMC, and Back in Black for sure. I appreciate the call. I, you know, you look at the eighties and, uh, I think the eighties, it was an odd time for music. There were so many different genres. And the unfortunate thing about the eighties was, uh, people had not, you know, people were sandwiching themselves into these niche groups where I only listen to this type of music and I only listen to that type of music. And if there's anything I can say for the odds and where we're at right now, and whether it's because of streaming music, which is really you know, it's controversial in its own right. At least we're branching out. At least we're realizing that more than one type of genre can touch us. Thanks so much for tuning in. Appreciate your time today. Listen, if you heard something on the podcast that you like, feel free to share it with your friends. And don't forget, we broadcast live daily between nine and noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.